So we're going to be in the book of Ruth. We're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. We believe scripture does that. So we've been walking through the book of Ruth, uh, which is in the Old Testament. And on page 394, I think, is that right? In the Bibles underneath you? 161, not even 394, I don't know. Um, The paperback Bibles match what I'll be talking about. But anyway, hey, I'm glad you're here. And uh, you may be here for the first time or the hundredth time, but man, you belonged before you walked in the room. And uh, we just have a deep affection for you. So um, let me pray. And well, yeah, let me pray one more time and we'll get into this. Father, um, wherever uh, your word is explained, your voice is heard. So we just invite your voice today. We do for you to speak and stir and challenge and invite today as we follow you. Um, For God, those of us that have questions, um, God, maybe would you answer them in surprising ways today? In Jesus' name, amen. If you ask anybody, ask anybody what God is like. Ask somebody that goes to church forever. Ask somebody that's never been in church before. Ask them around, ask them on the street, ask them around your dining room table. If you were to say, what is God like? What word would somebody use? I heard it. Love, right? It's the first word that comes to our minds when we think about God. This isn't unfounded, right? In 1 John, I think it's chapter 4. 1 John 4, John goes so far as to say that God is love. That at his very nature, who he is, is love. That that's at the absolute core of who God is. And as we've come into the book of Ruth, here's what we're discovering the book of Ruth is all about. The book of Ruth is all about God's love. The most repeated word uh, in the book of Ruth, the most significant and repeated word is hesed. It's a word that the Old Testament uses for a love that only God can love us with. It is this bulletproof, fireproof, um, pursuing, reckless love that isn't just a feeling that God has for you, but it is the way that God operates. And we find that the book of Ruth is a story about love, which is really confusing. Because the book of Ruth opens with a woman, Naomi, losing her husband after they escape famine in the land of Israel. And and her two sons marry women, but 10 years later, those sons die. And now Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are women in a culture where, where women are overlooked, mistreated. I mean, dogs are valued more highly than women in, in this culture. And now they're left alone. And this is a story we're told about God's love. We're told it's a story about God's love when Ruth goes, makes the impossible decision to return with her mother-in-law to the land of Israel. Ruth is a foreigner in Naomi's land. And we're told that this is a story about love. We're told it's a story about love when Ruth wakes up before sunrise every day and goes and picks up what scraps and pieces of grain she can find in some stranger's field so that she can feed her and her mother-in-law. We hear that's a story about love, which leads us to understand, to come to like kind of an impossible decision, which is really also the book of Ruth. It's a lot of impossible decisions. Either the love of God, so strange and complex and mysterious, either the love of God is entirely different than we've ever understood, or we're going to have to change the way that we understand God's love. That's the choice that the book of Ruth leaves us. If this is God's love, I can't change it. I can't change the way God loves me. If this is God's love in the book of Ruth, either I have to decide that's a love I want nothing to do with, or I have to do the hard, soul-searching work of, of redefining what God's love is about. And that's part of the work that we're doing in the book of Ruth. And, and the book of Ruth seeks really in the end to answer this question. What kind of love does God love us with? 
Okay, so sorry, English teachers. I know I just used a dangling preposition, right? So it should be something like, with what kind of love with which does God love us? Or something, right? Um, but what kind of love does God love us with? That's, that's what Ruth is seeking to answer. Look at how Ruth begins in Ruth chapter three. Chapter three, it says this. One day Naomi said to Ruth, Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Ruth every day is gathering grain, and Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of her dead, dead father-in-law, she's gathering field in his grain, gathering grain in his field. He's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on a threshing floor. Threshing floors were, ha- were the major way that you harvested. We have machines that separate like the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is the part we don't eat. They did not have this in Ruth's time. And so a threshing floor was often on the top of a hill. And uh, what you would do with the harvested grain is you would take pitchforks and you'd throw the grain up in the air. And the stalks, the part that you do not eat, would go blowing out through the wind and the heavy parts that you ate would fall back down onto the threshing floor. So Boaz has been threshing his, and his workers have been doing the threshing and, and now uh, he's gonna sleep there, which sounds strange. He's sleeping at the office, so to speak, but that was a pretty common practice because you wanted to make sure nobody came and stole your grain. Tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So do as I tell you, take a bath, put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, Naomi and Ruth have been living in Bethlehem for some time. Ruth leaves every morning to gather barley and wheat uh, from Boaz's field. And we've come to discover that Boaz is what we know as a man of valor, a gibor ha'il. He is of unusually upright and upstanding character. Very few people in all of scripture, much less, much less in, in our world today, would be men and, and women of valor, but Boaz has gone exceedingly far and above to care for Ruth, who is a foreigner, and and the mother-in-law, Naomi. And and Naomi has woken up from her grief. Do you know when you, if you've ever experienced grief, you know what this is like. It fogs you over for weeks and months at a time. And then all of a sudden you kind of wake up one day and you go, I think I'm back to myself. And this is what's happening to Naomi. Somehow the food being back home, it's waking her up and Naomi has a plan. Naomi instructs Ruth to get all dolled up and, goes, and go to Boaz. And Ruth, always dutiful, always obedient, does exactly what her mother-in-law says. She takes a bath, she puts on perfume and puts on her nicest clothes. And the language that the narrator is using is romantic language. The original hearers of this would have effectively heard like, wham, 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 wham. I've been feeling right, baby, right? (laughs) Trying to hold back this feeling for so long, right? That's what's happening. So Ruth is going to go on a date with Boaz, except it's kind of a strange date, right? Naomi instructs Ruth to go get Boaz's attention, not like by flirting or like a quiet walk along the river. Instead, she says, after he's asleep, go and uncover his toes and wait for the cold desert air of Bethlehem to tickle across them and wake him up. I mean, it just sounds so romantic, doesn't it? And, and so the funny thing is, Ruth does everything. So look at verse, verses five, six, and seven. Ruth says, I will do everything you say, 
So she went down to the threshing floor at night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. And by the way, the text never says that Ruth is like, well, that's weird, but okay. She's just like, all right. Um, After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, if you know what I mean, um, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. And then Ruth came quietly and uncovered his feet. Ruth meticulously follows her mother-in-law's instructions. And she quietly, not secretly, but quietly goes after dark and he's asleep on the threshing floor. And, and you know that he's in good spirits because he doesn't wake up when he's touched, right? So he's had a good night on the threshing floor. You know what I'm saying? And so she quietly uncovers his feet. So she takes his blanket and his robe and kind of just moves them up a little bit. And then she goes to sleep at his feet. And, and as strange as all of this sounds, you've got to understand that there were obvious clues to people. This is, this is all something that makes sense. And in fact, some commentators look at this and wonder um, if Ruth maybe isn't uncovering another part of Boaz, if you know what I mean. Um, if maybe there's just a little more going down on the threshing floor than maybe the text implies. Um, and yet, so this is definitely sexually charged language, elsewhere used in Semitic languages about, you know, things that we learned in phys ed and, uh, and from uncomfortable teachers with graphs and things. Unless you were homeschooled, which was probably better for you. And um, unless that probably meant your mom was doing it, so that's worse. Uh, um, Ruth has just stepped into, the language implies, I mean, even down to Jewish men aren't ever alone with women and they're never ever alone with women after dark. I mean, Ruth has stepped into a sexually charged moment. Okay, There's, the tension is high. Uh, it, it, it might even be called a, a questionable situation. If one of my youth group students had come to me and said, last night I went down to the threshing floor and uncovered Boaz's feet, I would have been like, girl, what is wrong with you? You know what I'm saying? And, and, and yet, here's what's surprising about this. Boaz, remember that Boaz is a Gabor Hayil. He's a man of valor. He, he's of upstanding character. And we're going to find out in just a few verses that Ruth is a woman of valor. The same word Hayil is used of her. And what's surprising is that in the midst of a question, there's no question that this is like gray area, okay? There's no question that this is not a questionable circumstance. This is a sexually charged moment. And yet, Ruth and Boaz prove their valor and prove their character, not by avoiding the situation entirely, but by how they behave with character and uprightness in the midst of a questionable circumstance, which, which this is kind of getting down to this question of what kind of love does God love us with? God's love does not keep us away from difficult situations. God's love does not keep us from questionable situations. God's love places us, more often than not, smack dab in the midst of uncomfortableness. Uh, Carolyn Custis James says this. She says, the narrator has deliberately created a scene riddled with sexual tension, not to spice up the story for the sake of sensationalism. In other words, it's not like you cannot put a TV on television and there not be sex in it and it's going to stay on, right? And then when it doesn't, all of a sudden you're like, what? this is, what is the show? Like, I've not seen anybody's butt yet, right? Um, and, and so it's not about adding, it's not, the narrator's not adding this for the sake of, like, spice. She says, it's to drive home an important point, namely that the people of Yahweh are perpetually confronted with difficult situations and hard choices. The people of Yahweh are always confronted by difficult situations and hard choices. And maybe this is the most practical thing about this sermon. If I can change your mind 
to stop thinking that God's love makes your life less complicated. God's love does not make your life less complicated. God's love does not make your life easier. Jesus does not exist to be a divine butler that makes everything more convenient for you. I'm gonna be 30 next year. I've been following Jesus and I've known Jesus for the vast majority of my adult life and I have never seen my life be more simple because of Jesus. And here's how we tell testimonies, right? Like stories, faith stories. Testimony is the Christian word. And it's like, before I met Jesus, my life was a hot mess, and then I met Jesus, and now everything's better. Okay, so what we say is chaos, Jesus, simple, right? Uncomfortable, Jesus, comfortable. Here's my story. Chaos, Jesus, more chaos with peace in the midst of the chaos, okay? Jesus' love, my, my love for Jesus, my relationship with Jesus has never made my life less complicated. And the lie that kind of the church has told, honestly, for the last 50 years, and it's a lie that some of you are in this room because you're like, yeah, that's not true and that's why I'm over it, is that Jesus makes your life easier. He doesn't. How can somebody make your life easier if his words are, anyone can, if you'd like to come after me, you can, but you're going to have to die you have to get, deny yourself, and you have to carry your own cross. And so here's Ruth and Boaz facing a difficult situation, a complex situation, and yet they behave valorously. They behave righteously in the midst of it. God's love does not protect us from difficult things. It places us in them to behave a different kind of way. And so eventually Boaz feels the cool air tickling his toesies. And in verse 8, it says this, Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. She replied, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family or kinsman redeemer. Spread the corner of your covering over me. Guys, the most, it was a romantic time, the ancient Near East, and proposals happened when a man took the corner of his robe and put it over the woman's head. Really made a problem for like hair and the pictures. But other than that, you know, because he, so he would take the robe of his cloak and he would put it like a ghost over her head. And this was how the proposal happened. They would do this in a public place. And she says, I am your servant. Spread the corner of your covering over me. You are my kinsman redeemer. And perhaps this has to be one of the greatest role reversals in history because here is Ruth, who is a foreign woman, who is a poor woman, proposing to a wealthy insider. A wealthy Jewish man is proposed to by a poor Moabite woman. And listen, like, like, girls ask guys to prom now, right? And I'm like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Men are men. They ask the girls, da, 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 da. And also, I am so glad I'm out of high school because asking girls to prom is effectively like, like, they outdo my proposal, right? Like, we were just out, like, walking and by a lake, and I just got down on a knee. There was, like, no, like, poster boards and lights and candles and 50 people and, like, a, a, crowd, a crowd dancing. Like, there was none of that, right? And, but when a woman proposing to him, if, they were, if we're not ready for a woman to ask a guy to prom in 2017, how do you feel like they felt about a woman asking a guy to marry him in, in, in 2500 BC? Ruth does not just propose. She, proposes, she doesn't just propose marriage. She proposes something costly. First of all, women, when they were proposed to, came with a dowry. 
a dowry. So like a woman would be given to a man also with like three donkeys, 10 sheep, like three like things of cloth and like 15 baskets of barley. It's exactly what Steph's parents gave me when I proposed to her, which was really convenient because her dad's a large animal vet. So I didn't even have to learn how to like care for the animals, right? They just, and, uh, <laughs> no. and so um, Ruth proposes marriage and she has nothing to give him. She's nothing to give him. In fact, what her proposal is based on a great cost to Boaz, because she says, spread your covering over me, for you are my family. You are my kinsman redeemer. Now, she is invoking Israel's laws. Ruth has gumption. Here's Ruth, a foreigner, who now knows enough of Israel's law to say to an Israelite, here's your law about how you should marry me. And she invokes, by saying family redeemer, she's really invoking two kinds of marriage law. And the first is what we call Levirat law. And Levirat law, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, Levirat law was such that, um, and I actually started to personalize this and then it got really gross. So I'm just gonna say, so there's a guy and he's married. He's got brothers. Guy that's married dies. Hit one of his brothers, even if they're already married, by the way, are obliged and, and through the law, the law gives opening to one of those guys marrying the dead guy's wife and impregnating her. Super comfortable. And the idea was that this provided for the woman, this continued the family line. This provided for the woman and, con- and, and, provi- and continued the family line. Um, and, and so she, but the problem with that is it's kind of expensive. If you have four siblings, your inheritance is divided, what, four ways, right? And if one of your brothers dies, it's not the worst thing that ever happened because your inheritance just got bigger, right? The kinsman redeemer law was costly to the person who found it because their inheritance, which just got bigger, shrunk back to the size it was again. But that's not the only thing Ruth is asking for. Ruth is not only asking this Boaz, who is a family relative, and that was the key. The key with Levirat law was it was the nearest male relative, And I'll tell you what, guys, you're going to leave today with some clear ancient Near East history that's going to really transform your life. And um, the the nearest male relative would marry him off, okay, and they would continue the line. The other thing about kinsman-redeemer law, there was Levirate law and then kinsman-redeemer law. And kinsman-redeemer law protected the property so it stayed within the family. So when the guy died, his nearest male relative could buy all of his property so that the property stayed stayed in the family. But here's the problem. Again, that's expensive. It is expensive to buy some guy's property. Ruth has no dowry to give Boaz and basically said, hey, let's get married. By the way, it's gonna cost you a lot of money. And Boaz responds favorably. Boaz responds positively, uh, giving us this picture of how much like God's love costs, right? But look at verses 10 through 13 of chapter three. Yahweh bless you, my daughter. The Lord bless you, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing me even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, Boaz is probably like mid-30s, and Ruth is probably mid-20s. And it makes him sound like he's a lot older, but keep in mind, like, life expectancy was like 40, right? And so he's thinking, you're kind of nearing the edge. And by the way, the other... The, all of those laws, the Kinsman Redeemer Law and the Levirate Law, assumes a child. And so far, Ruth has been barren for 10 years. Gumption, man. The Lord bless you. You're showing even more family loyalty than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. No, now, don't worry about a thing. 
I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man that is closer, more, related, more closely related to you than I. So stay here tonight, and in the morning, I will, I will talk to him, and if he's willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you, but if he is not willing, then, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Boaz is kind of flattered that this young woman has uncovered his foot in the middle of the night, as I think we could all agree we would be too. And first, Boaz says he's going to do what is necessary because everyone in town knows that she is a virtuous woman. The word isn't virtuous. It's not like she's like Joan of Arc. She's a woman of valor. She's hail. And Boaz sees in Ruth what is already in himself, which is unusual uprightness, an unusual character, which, by the way, kind of washes away questions that Ruth is kind of breaking some rules in a way that we should condemn her for going to Boaz in the middle of the night. Because there are some commentators that look at that and go, tisk tisk tisk, Ruth being a bad little girl. No, Boaz sees her midnight naked toe proposal as something making her more worthy of character. So he says, I will do what is necessary because everybody knows that you are a virtuous woman. And we'll kind of come back to that idea of virtue in a minute because it's just so interesting. But then he says, you are showing me even more family loyalty now than you did before, before being when she came to him to to take out of his field. But the word isn't just merely family loyalty, nor is it as the NIV does it, merely kindness. It's hesed. It's that word again. Uh, It's that word that means God's loving, pursuing, reckless, fireproof, bulletproof, covenantal, steadfast, faithful love, That is the love which Ruth embodies. Ruth embodies a faithful, loyal love. Ruth embodies a faithful, loyal love. And it's seen in a woman who proposes to a man. It's seen in a woman who proposes to a man. The Hesed in Ruth's soul Instead of making Boaz say, get out of here, crazy lady, and cover my feet up as you go. And instead of thinking that she's just got too much gumption, that she's an upstart, he responds with a a hesed of his own. In verse 14, so Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. So Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. And he measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. I mean, amazing generosity, but here's the deal. Let's not lose track of our heroine. I don't want us to lose track of this because the hero of the story is not Boaz. The hero of the story is Ruth. Boaz is a man of valor. Boaz goes above and beyond at every possible term, but he only does that because Ruth takes initiative. He only does that because Ruth shows courage. Ruth is, well, and by the way, in Old Testament narrative, God is always the hero of the story, and we'll get there in a second. But Ruth is the hero. This is not a man's story. This is the story of a woman named Ruth who, given the worst possible hand, who dealt the worst the worst possible measure, continues to rise up and take charge and take initiative and throwing away. Listen, Ruth is not this meek and mild and quiet and gentle of spirit, submissive woman. 
Ruth is a woman of valor. She rises up. I mean, she takes charge. She steps in. Ruth, on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, says to her mother-in-law, I will go where you go, I will stay where you stay, and I will die where you die. That is a decision of courage, leaving behind her family, leaving behind her gods, leaving behind her country. And then she gets into the land and wakes up early and says, I'm going to go, I'm going to find a field, and I'm going to bring us food. And every day, she gets up early and comes home late after gleaning this wheat and makes outrageous requests of Boaz so that he would give her more than she probably could, and then steps into a threshing floor, a place where a woman was not allowed, at a time when women really shouldn't be in the room anyway, and uncovers some guy's feet and says, hey you, cover, your, cover over me with your cloak because you are a family redeemer. At every turn, Ruth takes the story of redemption into her own hands and moves it forward. And in many ways, in many ways, Ruth is not the woman we want in churches. We don't want women with opinions. We, don't, we, don't, we want meek and mild and submissive women who are really good at baking and really good at being quiet. And here's Ruth, has a hard time being quiet, who wakes up early, who works hard, who takes her hand. Listen, ladies, I'm a guy, but I'm going to tell you this. Be a woman of valor. Men, be more like Ruth. Take initiative, take charge, do what you need to do. Here is Ruth, this woman of valor, who in every way embodies this Ruth, this woman of valor that we first meet in Proverbs 31. I've heard a lot of sermons on Proverbs 31 women growing up in the church, and they never sounded like Ruth. And yet Proverbs 31 says that the woman of valor is energetic and strong and a hard worker like Ruth who wakes up early and stays up late. Proverbs 31 says that she is clothed with strength and dignity and she laughs without fear of the future. Here is Ruth who does not worry what's coming down the pike, who just takes every day as it comes, laughs at fear of the future and just keeps going. When she speaks, her words are wise and she gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. Charm is deceptive and beauty does not last, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. Reward her for all she has done. Let her deeds publicly declare her praise. Here is a woman of strength. Here is a woman of valor. Here is a woman of gumption. Here is a woman that Proverbs praises as a woman of valor. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, you turn the page from Proverbs into the first page of, Ru- the, first page of the book of Ruth as it demonstrates to us these women of character and uprightness and strength and, and, and courage and initiative and might. Ruth is a beautiful woman. She is a wise woman. She is a strong woman, a woman that we should all be hoping to become more like, whether we're male or female, a woman that we would want to raise our our daughters to be because she is a woman of strength and of all the things on that holy night in Bethlehem. Oh, holy night, the stars were brightly shining as Ruth crept into the threshing floor and uncovered the feet of her future husband. And when he woke up, said, cover over me with your cloak, for you are a family redeemer. And in the face of Ruth, in the face of a Moabite woman, we catch the slightest glimpse of the face of Jesus. The light of the world stepping down into the darkness, who for us and for our salvation endured the cross, despising the shame, overcoming sin 
the death and the devil, demonstrating to us every bit of courage that Ruth had. And on that holy night in Bethlehem, a thrill of hope struck Ruth's soul as Boaz looked at her and said, I will do what is necessary. And in his voice and in his face, we see and hear Jesus saying, I will do what is necessary in the face of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, who is like her and yet unlike her. We see the face of Jesus who becomes our kinsman redeemer. It's the theology of the book of Ruth that foretells Jesus by giving us Boaz, who as a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, brings her into the family of God even though she's a foreigner. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer who brings us into God's family even though we too are foreigners. Hebrews says something really interesting. Um, It's in Hebrews chapter two. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all those who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Unlike us, he becomes like us because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood and purchased us back, redeemed us from the power of death and the power of sin. And he does it in the most remarkable way. He climbs up inside of death and breaks through. No human had gone to death and come out on the other side, but death, when it swallowed Jesus, swallowed a son and it burned death up from the inside. And suddenly the power of sin and the death and the devil are conquered. But on that holy night in Bethlehem, 2,500 years before Jesus was ever born, Ruth, a Moabite foreign woman, and Ruth, just your average wealthy Jewish guy, show us the story of Jesus and show us the story of the gospel long before they would ever know his name. Long before they would ever know his name. And that gospel is the story of God's complicated love. This love that puts us into impossible decisions and impossible choices. This love that is so very costly. This love that is so courageous and bold and moving toward that which is challenging. This love, this love that is complex enough to love the complexities of you and me. That's it, right? I mean, not 110% of the time we are complex, hot messes. 110% of the time. And the love that we would simplify and sterilize to manageable bite-sized portions cannot love our hot mess. It cannot encompass the cracks and the fractures and the brokenness that we walk around with. But this love, this hesed that we see in the book of Ruth, as complex and confusing as it is, fits just like a puzzle piece into our brokenness. And Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, loves us with a love that we say never lets us go. Because we were flesh and blood, and so he became human. For only as a human could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had, who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who live their lives as slaves 
to the fear of dying. And the funny thing is, when the fear of dying is released, we become like Ruth. We become courageous and risk-taking. We laugh at the future because we know who holds the future. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to redeem us. You are our kinsman redeemer, the one who saves us. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would teach us a new kind of courage today, that you would give us courage after the spirit of Ruth, and that we might have that kind of recklessness and the love that we have towards others that you have toward us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.